So you're ready to ask the biggest question of your life, the only question before that question. How do you find the perfect ring to ask it with? With the incredible selection of diamonds at Jared and our price match guarantee, you can dare to stop searching and find the perfect diamond at a price you'll love. Visit your local Jared store today and dare to be devoted. We promise to match any price on a like loose certified diamond of the same quality from any other jewelry retailer. See jared.com slash price match for details. Hello, and welcome to Everyday Connection Now with your hosts, Jean Victoria Norlock and Rick O'Shields, bringing your inner life to your everyday life. Welcome, everybody, to this edition of Everyday Connection Now. I am still Rico Shields, and uh, joining me from thousands of miles away in the Phoenix Nest, we have Jean Victoria Norlock. How are you, Jean? I'm great, Rick. How are you? I'm just awesome. I'm a lovely. This now is a morning where I am, and you are, but... Uh, yes, yes. Watch the sun play across the trees and bamboo as it is making its daily climb. It's just quite nice. The, the monkeys were by for coffee, and so, you know, all is well in the jungle, I suppose. That's awesome. Um, I know that when we first connected this morning, you and I, that um, there was a news item or something that wasn't agreeing with you. Yeah. And so then, in my usual manner, I... I rapidly found several news items that would agree with you so that we could have a fun call. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I'm really excited. Um, I, in, in, in the news today, in the BBC, the Bishop of Bling has been busted. I'm really excited about this because, uh, you know, we've been talking for months about uh, our beloved new Pope. And, Yes, I just said beloved new pope. I know first book anti-Catholic, whatever. This guy gets it. Um, so <laughs> we've been following very closely what he's been doing. Um, we're frequently posting uh, his his material and getting a lot of a lot of comments like, "Oh, he's going to have to prove that he's you know he's not just blowing smoke. He's not just saying these things." Blah 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 blah. Well, not so long ago, he made it very very clear that the church needs to be brought down a few pegs. Um, you know, and I'm, I'm using very casual terminology to describe this, but his basic message is uh, this whole we are wealthy and they are not is not okay. And so just recently he put his money where his mouth is and suspended a bishop who spent an exorbitant amount of money on redoing his little private residence. And it, what kind of angst me about what this bishop does is he, he did this in Germany, this bishop, where apparently people don't have the option to donate to the church, but rather they are actually forced to give a church tax, which I didn't know until today. But... And this guy takes that tax and spends an equivalent of $42 million 
to renovate his official residence. And I don't know if if this is a, probably, if it's a $42 million renovation, it's probably been going on for a while, but you have to kind of think to yourself, are these bishops and cardinals even paying attention to what's going on in the Vatican right now? Have they been listening to the Pope? <laughs> Perhaps not. I would think. I would think that you might be sitting in your $42 million residence being a bit concerned that this new pope is going to pull the rug out from under your nice little game. And sure enough, that's what happened. Bathtub. Yeah, and right. And sure enough, that's what happened. So, so the Vatican is acting on these ideals that the pope has put forward. And I'm excited to see this growth and expansion within the church. As always, you know, I mean, I have to repeat this whole concept of the church must fall, it's corrupt, blah, 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 blah. We're talking billions of people's faith here. So, no, many the church falling. Medical and, the, uh, you know. the children that have been fed, that, you know, yes, they've done a lot of things that are not that great, but then we're none of us are perfect. And so... They need, just like every other human being on the planet, they need to be given a chance to change. And I believe it's happening. I see the proof of it, and it's exciting. And, it, and he's just getting started. That's the best part. Like, what? He, what's he going to do next year? <laughs> yeah. He's been there a while. Well, yeah, once he feels comfortable in his <laughs> new position. <clears throat> right? And, and, so, and yeah. just to remind people, he did, you know, when he was the the big guy for Argentina, uh, whatever that is, uh, not being Catholic, I don't know if that's Archbishop of Argentina or what. Anyway, we, when he reached that point, he kind of toddled around the official residence for a bit and said, well, this is ridiculous, and went back to his little apartment and uh, where he cooked his own meals and loved to tell the other cardinals about you know, the fact that he cooked his own meals. And he sold the residence and, yeah. and put, the, put the money into feeding the hungry and doing the things that he felt like the church in Argentina ought to be doing. So it, it would not surprise me, but would really warm, warm me right on up if, if he just turns around and sells this thing and then takes that money. And either that or, you know, in the meantime, put some homeless people in there and let them use the bathtub um, uh, just to demonstrate, Absolutely. you know, but, but a big demonstration really, I mean, Things like this would happen in the past, and the church would make some explanation, and the the bishop might get called to Rome for a little consultation, and then back to their $43 million residence would they go. Yeah, and, and they'd sweep it under the rug, and it would be forgotten, and, and whatever new controversy happened to be popping up at the time. But this is not the way the church is playing the game anymore. Every time one of these things comes up, they investigate it, they look at it, and they mull it over, and then they act on it. And this, to me, is a very positive thing. It's, it's a brilliant move in, in such a great direction. So, again, brilliant, brilliant moves. for the Pope. We, uh, we, had our yeah, buddy, we had our buddy Bob <laughs> this morning, and it, 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 what he's doing in, in ways fits right in with uh, what we'll be talking about this morning with a wonderful guest that we're going to introduce here momentarily but bob bob barker um from the price is right and the answer to gene's first question is yes he's still alive um <laughs> eight, 89 years old 
And he's, uh, so awesome. folks may remember him as always signing off from his television show with help control the animal population, have your pets spayed or neutered. Uh, he, virtually every show, I, I don't know that he ever forgot it. Um, no, and, I don't think so. It was his, his signature. Uh, so he's, he's had a little, uh, a little personal victory, brought, brought the man to uh, tears, choked him up a bit uh, with some elephants. You want to you want to tell Jean? You were loving on Bob. I can't I can because I've actually been to the Toronto Zoo, so I can attest to the fact that um, the housing for the animals at the Toronto Zoo is is well. I I don't believe in zoos anyways, um, but the housing there is is certainly inappropriate for for the animals that they're supposedly caring for. I do not believe that they are able to maintain um, an environment that's you know, healthy for the animals. I don't think they have the property to be able to to provide enough space for the animals. And I certainly know from from a few years of living in Toronto that they have struggled with finances and resources for for a very long time. So it's not a surprise um, that this has happened. But uh, he's rescued, quote unquote. And yes, I'm going to say. Rescued rescued because I don't think that, that any elephant living in the Toronto Zoo would be happy or healthy for any length of time, um, has rescued three animals and had them shipped to a new home. And um, the, the, the link is on my wall. I'm hoping that we'll be able to put it on the Everyday Connection wall. It's just so worth seeing the video because this space that they've been put into, what was it? A thousand and something acres, yeah, Rick. I can't yeah, almost, remember, but almost a couple of thousand acres of the you know full retreat, and there's several hundred acres marked off now for these yeah. elephants, all to themselves, um, that they can wander about as they wish. Um, it does in the hills, the where it's located. It occasionally gets a a wee chilly, not nearly as cold as Toronto, I'm sure. But so the animals have. Um, the the, the uh, elephants also have heated stalls in the elephant barn and um, and a therapeutic jacuzzi. Uh, so they have been relocated and retired and uh, uh, to a jacuzzi suite in California. Um, yeah, much to the dismay, I might add, of the Toronto Zoo, who tried to block the whole move when um, the organization initially tried tried to rescue these these magnificent animals uh and but you know bob barker stepped in and for the tiny price of a million bucks done deal elephants are now happily roaming as free as as they could be in uh in a situation where they're not actually in the wild so kudos to bob for at the age of 89 saying on camera, you know, I had, and this is the best part of the video, I think, and why it's so worth watching, that he had this amazing job all of his life that he absolutely loved. He made a ton of money, and he lived a very happy life, and now he's planning on it. It's good for you, because you can't take it with you, so you might as well do something good with it. Yep, said right there on the video. I, I, uh, we had a little telephone bobble there with you, but he said I, that he intends to die broke uh, yep. because there's wonderful things like these elephants that he can use that money to do something constructive with. And uh, 
Um, I don't know if he's got kids and that sort of thing, but he's probably, you know, done some things for them. And, and uh, uh, reminds me of my father a little. I hate to drag Dad back in but I, and, and talk about how wonderful he is, but I do that from time to time. He has, you know, done things to see to it that his children, which includes me, will one day, whenever he departs, um, have some gifts. But he is trying to see to it that the rest of the money that he's made over the years uh, is is dispersed and given away. He's has for oh over a decade now, I think, been putting several uh, young folks through uh, university up at OU and and other things. And uh, so before there was ever this. Uh, I can't even remember what it's called now, but uh, uh, I think Bill Gates is one of the guys and, uh, you know, getting multi-millionaires uh, yeah, to sign on to give most of their money away. The agreement uh, to, to get rid of it. Yeah. Well, my dad's been doing that for a long time and apparently Bob Barker as well. And, and they're about the same age, so uh, they probably get along really well, I would imagine, because uh, <laughs> they have that in common that, you know, uh, there isn't any sense and you know, I'm going to leave a big chunk to the kids so that them and my grandkids will, you know, send all the grandkids to college. Uh, and, um, in fact, he's, we've got great grandchildren now. So, you know, uh, but, but then the rest of it for something constructive instead of just, you know, a lump of money to sit around somewhere. What good is that? Yes, so that's not that's, that's not doing anybody any good. So the the moral of the story is yet again, you know, here we are talking on Everyday Connection. We're about to talk to an amazing guest from from Poland, and um, but again, the moral of the story is humans are awesome. Humans are awesome. It's just what we do. Humans are awesome. Absolutely. So there's your good news for the day, and now let's hear some more. Now we'll hear some more, because we do have a guest joining us from Poland. Um, British fellow, and uh, but was invited to uh, do some work that we're going to talk about. Uh, so is over in Poland just now, uh, Sir Julian Rose. Hello, Julian. Hello. How are you? I'm well. I'm very well, thanks. Welcome. And uh, <clears throat> well, it's nice to be on your program. Thanks for inviting me. Absolute pleasure. Yeah, we're glad you could share some time with us. Absolutely. Well, so we'll get we'll get right down to it, and we'll ask you the big question of the day, um, Julian. Who on earth are you, and what do you do? Well, I mean, who on earth am I? I think everyone has to ask themselves that question, and they probably come up with a, an answer which is far from the truth, because actually none of us really know who we are. Uh, other than the fact that we get given an earthly name and we tend to identify fairly strongly with that name. But do we go back far enough to figure out that we're actually some cosmic being that maybe has been flying around in the universe and decided to become corporated, if you like, not incorporated exactly, but corporeal form on planet Earth for a certain period of time? And I came onto this earth on the 3rd of March, 1947, in an old house in England. 
And actually, I was a home birth in a very old house in England in the middle of a huge snowstorm when the doctor couldn't get through. But nevertheless, um, the midwife did, and I popped out in this old house. And I think that surrounding informed me quite a lot because I tend to value things which are real, uh, which tend to be tried and tested, and which have proved their worth over long periods of time. And I tend not to value very highly, which comes and goes very quickly and is fashionable. And one of the things which came about in my life was that I inherited an estate, a country estate and a title, baronet. And I wasn't interested in any of that sort of thing. I wanted to be an actor and an artist and a film director. And uh, it was because my older brother died in a motor racing accident. My father died uh, two years later that I inherited all this. And so it became a major issue in my life, that is Julian Rose, me. What am I going to do? I have aspiration, creative aspiration in one direction, and I have an enormous responsibility in another direction. And I don't want to let my parents down and everybody else who struggled to keep this property alive for about 100 years. So most of what happened after that uh, is based on the fact that I had to find a form of um, coming together between these two issues which seemed very separate. And it rather happened in that I got involved in organic farming. I decided at a certain point uh, to become an organic farmer and to make this estate in England into one of the early pioneer organic farms. And the reason why I'm out in Poland now, working with Jadwiga Wapata and the International Coalition to Protect the Polish Countryside, which I'm president of, is because I'm now passed through the phase of 25 years of hands-on farming in England, and now I'm working with Polish peasants to try and help them defend their small uh, peasant farms against corporate and GMO interests and government, which is in the pocket of corporations, so, in a sort of nutshell, that is what goes on emotionally and actually in the person called Julian Rose. Well, Jean, that's one of our better answers. <laughs> oh, indeed. I could make a collection clip out of that and not even have to listen to the whole show. Um, the, <laughs> wow. It, it, hmm. I Big want story. to immediately jump. Um, all of it. <laughs> I want to immediately jump on to this, this need to find balance between desire and duty because yes. I think that that's one of the basic fundamental human struggles. Mm. Um, we're raised in a society to believe things are, or we're taught things are a certain way and certain things are important and, um, you know, you must have a five-year plan and all that stuff, but... Yeah. We we know in our hearts that that what is being done is not working, mm. and so we all struggle internally to find the balance between doing what we need to do and doing what our heart is telling mm. us to do. Absolutely right. So, can you talk to us a little bit about because this must have been. A, a massive struggle for you, given given your situation. I mean, it's hard enough for a housewife who wants to be an artist 
to struggle between raising her kids and pursuing her art career mm. and still providing for the home. But your responsibilities were so huge. I, you know, I mean, it must have been very heavy burden or felt like a very heavy burden. So how did you find the balance? Well, you're absolutely spot on, I think, in the way you described that. And I know it's shared by everybody, this issue. In my particular case, um, <laughs> it's very difficult to pinpoint it exactly. But, you know, I was sent away to private schools when I was a young boy. In fact, at the age of eight, I was sent to a private school where you weren't allowed to see your parents on one day in 12 weeks. And I went there after having lived entirely at home with my mother and father and my family. Uh, and so that was the first major shock. It came even before I inherited this big estate. And that was perhaps the toughest of all, because there I had to realize, you know, at the tender age of eight years old, that this was going to be a survival issue. It had nothing to do with learning. It had nothing to do with education at all. It had to do with how to survive in a completely alien situation where actually the teachers were a very strange group of people who were very removed from the compassionate approach to life and believed that they were training people to run the empire. And so for five years, I, what I call, put my consciousness in my pocket, but I remembered I had it. And I said, I'm going to teach, I'm going to learn survival, and if any opportunity comes up to use the conscious, the more subtle element, I'll do it. But it very rarely did. Good fortune, however, stepped in and I was going to go to Eton, which is the, the most important private school in England. and would have continued that particular way of looking at life almost entirely. But I failed my exams and landed up in a school which actually helped people who were struggling and didn't seem to conform or fit. And there I learned two things. I learned a love of uh, acting and I learned a love of sport. And I thought, if I can um, put my passion into the acting and the sport, somehow maybe the exams will come through. And that's exactly what happened, thanks largely to some very remarkable teachers who saw in me something unusual and helped to bring it out. Then jump forward um, to a few years later when this happened and my brother was killed and my father died. Yes, the first reaction was total shock. I couldn't even conceive how I could deal with it. But I was very fortunate in having a very remarkable mother who understood perfectly well that it was impossible for me and said to me when I was about 18 years old, you must go through and do what you feel you need to do. I will look after things at least for another five, six, seven, maybe ten years and you, should, and you must feel free to follow your heart. And I went immediately to Australia and I worked for two years out there I worked for the Australian Broadcasting Commission and I worked as what's called a jackaroo, which is someone that gets on a horse and musters cattle in the vast ranges of the outback. But again, the duality. I was learning the hard way as a jackaroo and I was learning the heart way, or at least not entirely heart, but certainly the artistic way via gaining experience in television. And when I came back from Australia, I went to the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art and studied stage management and acting. I was very fortunate to get in because it's pretty tough. And after that, I met up with an experimental theater company from America. 
And that's a long story, though, actually. I traveled to America and spent quite a lot of time in the States, when I say quite a lot, nine to ten months. And this was in 1970. And in 1970, was the end of just the end of the hippie era. And I had the good fortune to land up in a commune in San Francisco with a lot of people smoking marijuana and playing movie pop music and offering quite a lot of something I'd never experienced from other people before, some type of love, you know, <laughs> and not necessarily the deepest. But it completely opened me up for the first time in my life. And what I discovered was that there was a huge richness out there which I didn't know existed. I mean cosmic richness. I mean planetary richness. I mean richness within the human being. And from that moment onwards, I suddenly saw that I could incorporate this estate. I could move forward in an artistic spirit and try and find work in that realm. But I could incorporate the beginning of a transitional process on the estate which would follow the same type of approach. And that, in fact, did happen after 10 years working in experimental theater, mostly in Belgium, with some colleagues from America. I started converting my farm to organic farming. And what happened at that moment was I suddenly felt that the principles that I, we were working on in the experimental theater work, which was actually quite far going, it was about putting voice, music, movement and text into finding the, the one source which, which, if you like, informs those four things. And when, it was, when I got to England and started taking over my, the farm, which had just started to go down an agrochemical route, incidentally, I had to stop it. Um, the Soil Association, which was the organization promoting organic farming at that time, which I joined with very quickly, they said the principle of organic farming is, to connect, is the connection between soil, plant, animal, and man. It's one cyclic wheel. And this is deep stuff, I'm saying. I know it's right off the bat to be talking so deeply, but that issue connected immediately with the voice, movement, music, and text. And I saw underneath it was a sort of quantum theory which connected the two completely. And I was overjoyed, and I jumped into this uh, organic conversion with enormous passion and energy. And uh, I, I hoped I can, uh, at least to a degree, uh, answer to your question, although, of course, we could go on talking about that particular issue for a very long time. Well, it... It actually makes perfect sense. I mean, when you think in terms of artistic creation, true artistic creation is organic creation. It's not yes. planned. It's not plotted. It just flows. flows from the individual and from the environment because the individual is never, never inspired to create uh, without influence from, from the environment or from yes. the experience. So, of course, yeah. it's, it's, completely, it's a completely organic process. So it makes <laughs> exactly. total sense to me that the the base core of both your experience as an artist and what you were learning about organic farming would mesh so well together. Mm. Well, it's wonderful that you recognize it. That many people say, wow, how could it possibly be? You know, you went from something to do with experimental acting into agriculture. You couldn't have anything which could be two more opposite issues than that. How the hell did you do it? But they're not uh, opposite. They're not opposite at all. In fact, they're, they're, 
they're almost identical. I mean, we consider our relationship with our environment. We consider our relationship with our, our Mother Earth and with the food that we that we eat. There is a, a very profound, deep connection, a, a flowing and a give and take of energy. We feed the land, the land feeds us. And well, so our creation is exactly the same. So. Absolutely true. And I think what it, what it really rather proves is that Sadly, you know, most people who one communicates with have never had the pleasure of touching that deeper place in themselves. So, you know, we're having a conversation about something which sounds to the mind of the person who is still operating according to the sort of status quo educated agenda. It sounds like opposites, but the people who feel and understand much more deeply the energy flow you're describing, yes, it does sound as though there's an organic connection. But believe me, we are in the minority in that. It does require some experience, I think, to um, to find it, uh, because we are sort of taught that they're separate, you know, the scientific practice of put, putting everything in tiny boxes and um, disconnecting things. Uh, in fact, uh, the BBC spoke recently about environmental deficit disorder or something <laughs> odd along those lines but I know that in the in the states where I come from th- there's children running around that, that literally think that carrots come from grocery stores and you explain to them that they grow in the ground and they're just shocked and, um, and, and I believe that that connection is um, yeah, well it's obviously missing from so many lives but that that um, is something that the the human being hungers for is that knowledge of you know mm-hmm. I fit into this grand creation this this mm-hmm. uh, this symphony and um, uh, so it's something that uh, and and you struck on it quite early um, the seventies was not a time when organic was fashionable um, or uh, mainstream at all. I would think that there was perhaps some. Well, you you mentioned the 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 place was in the midst of converting to agrochemical farming, um, because that was the way of the future or something mm-hmm. silly mm-hmm. like that in the 70s. Um, you know, with these all these chemicals and these things, we're going to increase production and feed the world and um, better living through chemistry. Oh yes, the Dow Chemical Corporation. And, um, um, and, and, and I think now that some of the resurgence in the popularity and the mainstreaming of it, people are hopefully anyway, beginning to discover that, you know, missing connection to the land and their food and their, uh, you know, food is not, uh, some laboratory preparation. It's, it's a natural process and, and I think, and apparently you've uh, come to know, I should, I should guess, that um, that it is better. The natural process is is simply better for us than some imagined laboratory fabrication. Undoubtedly, undoubtedly, I think the biggest difficulty for people today. Uh, is that 
they are hugely attracted to the concept of convenience food, uh, fast food, quick chill food, convenience food, and also to supermarkets as the main outlet for food. Now, in both cases, particularly the second, you know, it relies heavily on a global economy, a global economy which is not remotely interested in the quality of food. It's interested in what food might attract people to buy. It. I mean, it's interested in dressing itself up, let's put it that way, to be attractive to people to buy and to give the illusion of cheapness. But what this effect has done is two things. One, it's virtually trashed the planet in a period of very, very short period of time because of the vast transportation of food in all directions. For instance, a, a typical supermarket trolley of food in England, we did research on this 15 years ago, has traveled over 3,000 kilometers. And these are bog standard items which you need on a daily basis in your home. Uh, the quality of that food is pretty much non-existent. 50% of all the nutrients and vitamins and even energy has gone from all fruit and vegetables. Uh, a lot of it is heavily packaged in plastic, which is an enormous problem that, that food can't even breathe. And of course, that's a vast pollutant in its own right. It's been through four or five temperature changes in the course of the five days it's taken to get from the farm to that supermarket shelf. And then the buyer, you know, is led to believe that they're buying something of quality and that they're spending their money wisely. And of course, it's a massive con. It's con on such a huge level, it's very hard to believe, but it's the extraordinary power of propaganda and advertising, which goes with the corporate and the consumerist approach to life means that the great majority of people, I think you rightly said, never actually get the experience. They don't get the actual experience. They don't even get near the experience, what it means to grow food, to, to know food in its natural state. And the hence you get, you know, in urban societies today, huge numbers of people who are really in the hands of the corporations that sell the food entirely, not just for what they're eating, but for all the information. So the breakthrough in, in changing that cannot come very fast. In fact, from the time I started converting my farm in 1975 um, to the time I started, you might say, becoming recognized as an organic farmer, was about 15 years. And in that period of time, it was an uphill battle to get people to recognize that this sort of food is different from the conventional food. And it might be a little bit more expensive, but what you're getting is a completely different product and far more valuable for your health. What I what I find interesting um, about your 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 comments on expense is that my recent move out to the country has taught me an incredible lesson with regards to the cost of food. Um, mm. That if you can find a way to buy locally, and the expense is cut in half or more I can go to my local vegetable lady whose name happens to be Jean how cool is that and get my vegetables for the week for about 20 bucks and they're all locally grown they're organic um, I know that I'm supporting local farmers so that that makes me feel better about the food that I'm eating I know that these farmers, I mean, it, what's interesting is that the lady who's selling the food knows 
all the farmers in person. You know, she knows their back histories. So you can find out where this farm is. You can even go visit if if you choose. Mm-hmm. And so there's a definite connection between the the people who are growing the food and the people who are purchasing it. <clears throat> and there's it, so you're not only saving money. You're eating healthy food and you're supporting these people and their families, which is, like I said, a, a great feeling. And so I'm always when I'm when I'm listening to people talk about the the expense between buying organic and buying food in the grocery store, I recommend that if you are able to take the time to seek out local growers and local markets and buy locally. It's it's better for your pocketbook and better for your soul and better for your body. Well, are you there? Yeah. Well, Jean, you know, you you've really absolutely hit it on hit the nail on the head. This is absolutely spot on because I decided exactly that right the way back in 1975, and I said to myself, um, I'm going to sell everything locally. And I got involved actually in the, with, I was elected onto the board of the Soil Association, which was this organization promoting organic farming, and also setting standards which whereby they would certify farms to be organic. It was one of the main launches of the organic movement actually globally, this little organization in England. But many people who are to be in its optimum condition, should be grown on healthy uh, soils, quite obviously, but should also be sold in in its optimum condition locally, fresh and seasonal. And the uh, issue there is exactly as you describe it. Not only is the energy level and the nutrient level in the food vastly better, but the connection made between the bio, like the consumer and the farmer, when buying locally means that both parties actually understand each other and, and know what each other are looking for and actually in a certain sense can help each other. And the health benefit there is not only uh, physical, it's mental and psychological. And the share, sense of sharing when you're starting and you're, and you're doing quite small-scale farming is a very, very important feeling because most farming is very uh, lonely. You get on a tractor, and I did this, and I, you spend hours and hours going up and down in rows, listening maybe to the radio, and you have a lot of work, and sometimes you have to milk your cows early in the morning, and you don't finish till late at night, day after day after day after day. And there's almost nobody else who understands this way of life in the late 20th century or early 21st. So again, by selling locally, uh, you have the contact with the public who are saying to you, wow, you know, that's delicious. The flavor in our products is superb. I love it. And they're getting the product at the price, which is completely right. So I'm delighted to hear that you've taken, that, um, taken up buying local in your part of Quebec. And this is exactly what needs to happen on a global scale. And then we'll have a real revolution. Well, I, I, I actually, I, I told woman that I, I find myself feeling very blessed um, to have her in the location that she's in to have taken on this job that she's taken on because she has built up uh, a network of farmers who who bring her vegetables and, and 
fruits um, every day. She's open seven days a week, mm. and you know she's she's open respectable hours. She's there from eight a.m. till five p.m. And she's also located right beside a, a one of those little family eateries that's run mm. father daughters or brick in the the till. Um, and so I I tell her when I go, you know, I'm, I'm very glad that she's there and. I mm-hmm. always let her know that I really appreciate the quality of the food that I'm getting because mm-hmm. now we're getting into fall here. And so some of the fruits that my kids like to eat are not available there at her stand anymore because they're out of season. And, you know, when it comes to kids, sometimes you kind of have to buy what they'll eat so that they will eat. Uh, and I do want them to have fruits and vegetables. So, but the quality in the the taste and the texture and the effects that the food has on the body mm. is so much better from mm. her stand, her little tiny stand on the side of the road, than what I would get when I go into the grocery store. And her fruits I, and vegetables just... last forever. Like they they stay good. They they don't yeah. rot in my fridge. Yeah. They don't go yucky. They don't, you know, I can buy at the beginning of the week and still know that come Sunday dinner, I'm going to have fresh fruits and vegetables to use. And that, to me, is important. It certainly is. And, and actually, the children of all of us, they, that's the most important of all that they get access to that food because what they're building at that tender age, you know, is they're building up their immune systems, they're building up their strength, and they're building up what they need to, to grapple with life later on. And it is absolutely, I think, essential that children get access to this sort of food. There's been a lot of studies in England, even on the continent of Europe as well, about hyperactivity in children that are getting sugary, fatty, uh, processed, etc., you know, foods. And they can't even concentrate at school for more than about 30 seconds. Hyperactive disorder syndrome, you know. So the teachers have to grapple with this problem. But very few people actually still recognize that this is the dietary factor plays an enormously important role in the basic health of young people. And I was just going to add to that the thing about rotting food. You know, this is because the most foods all barring organic or from very small scale producers that don't use pesticides, herbicides, fungicides and nitrates. Um, basically, the, when you are using the modern agricultural tools, what you're doing is actually altering the DNA of the plant. And particularly nitrate fertilizer, which is a synthetic form of nitrogen, uh, which is in, like, looks like salt when you put it on the ground. It doesn't smell. It doesn't, it's not like farmyard manure. You know, it doesn't smell. It looks very easy to use. You chuck it on. It creates around 25% further growth in the plant, but it's artificial stimulant. It's rather like us drinking a Coke and getting a sort of buzz for half an hour and then going down again. That's exactly the same effect it has on the plant. So the reason why none of those fruits actually or, or vegetables actually last is because of the extra nitrogen added has meant that the DNA in the plant has been weakened and therefore they go bad more quickly. It's actually very simple. But, you know, most of this information isn't in the public domain, or even if it is, most people aren't particularly interested in following it. 
Well, I think part of the disinterest is actually in the fact that they've never had the opportunity to see the effects or they've never had the opportunity to taste the difference. And and that's one mm. of the things that, you know, I, I'd like to see change where if if these opportunities were more readily available in in restaurants and even in schools, uh, if if kids yeah. could understand the difference in the taste and the flavor and the texture of a, a locally grown, and I stress locally grown, because transportation has so many detrimental effects on our food, and that's a mm. huge one. And for me to say that, because my husband's a truck driver, <laughs> for me to say that is kind of shooting myself in the foot. Um, but at the same time, I've had that experience. You know, I've had I've had the blessed opportunity to be able to travel to other countries where I could pick a mango from a tree and taste it fresh from the tree and know the difference. So now, to me, going to the grocery store and buying a mango is, is you know, I mean, I, I I'm pretty desperate for the flavor of mango when I do that, simply because I know what a fresh from the tree mango tastes like, and it doesn't taste anything like what they sell you in the store. I had the same experience in Costa Rica. I have hated papaya all my life until I went to Costa Rica and tasted a papaya that was fresh from a local grower in Costa Rica. And all of a sudden, now that that to me was good. It was yummy. I, I wolfed it down. You know, I couldn't get enough. I wanted more. I watched her. It was come on, uh, come on Rich. Fun. Tell us about it. It was fun to it was fun to watch, and um, uh, in fact, I uh, have had some health challenges over the last five years, and uh, that's one of the reasons that I came back here to Costa Rica. And uh, uh, I visited the United States recently uh, to see some of my medical uh, friends, and every last one of them said. Number one, whatever you're doing, keep doing it. And they, they had told me that before they asked me what I was doing. And uh, they said, because your results are, are better, you, yes, you've, uh, you've still got a, a few little dregs, but, uh, you know, I'm making, I'm healing at a rate that I haven't uh, in, in five years. And, and it's interesting to note, our, our host, when, when Jean and I came down here together to do remotes, uh, she's been down here seven years and had the opportunity to to really observe the local folks. And uh, she finds, and I find in, in, in my short time here, the kids here are rarely sick. Um, they just don't have the sniffles. They rarely get the flu or anything like that. And... Uh, um, it's, I think, to a large part, to do with their diet. Uh, you know, people want to say, well, the kids run around and so they're exposed to things and so they develop immunity, and that's part of it. Uh, you live in a sterile household where everything's been treated with antibacterial, this, that, and the other. You, your body doesn't have an opportunity to develop any resistance to those germs because you've been prevented to be exposed. But, mm. But the nutrition, the food... Um, it, it's still the case here like it was when I was a, a youngster that you certain times a year you go to the store certain things just they're not available 
you know, that you ask the guy to produce stand. He says, well, that's out of season. We'll have more of that at so-and-so time. Um, and they're used to that. They eat differently in the winter than they do in the summer, and and and, and that's part of their way of life. And they um, they have herb gardens and, and sometimes medicinal herbs, but herb gardens, and they grow what they can right close to their house. Uh, the children know. Um, uh, you know, I could hold up, you know, the kids are fascinated by computers and video games and stuff, just like they are everywhere. And, um, uh, but, uh, you know, I've had uh, the young lady that works for the people who uh, I rent this house from that has been here to uh, clean, and she brought her son with her. And um, I could hold up half a dozen things out of the house and say, what's this? And he just shrugs his shoulders. But I can hold up a fruit or or even just a leaf, and he knows what that is. And um, and she knows. I was standing here, and, and she was looking out at the at the yard, and it just kind of, every six weeks, someone comes and they they shave it bare down to the ground because it's the only way to keep it, the jungle from taking your house back. And uh, but she she looked out in the yard and she saw some what I have to say my American trained eyes see as a weed. You know it's not grass it's some other something. And and she walked over she said do you know what that is? And I, I said no. And she walked over and pinched the leaf off of it and stuck it under my nose. It's cilantro and uh, cilantro however that's properly pronounced, which I've used for cooking for a long time. But this is a wild version of it. It doesn't look like the stuff you get in the store. And But when she needs cilantro to cook, that's what she does. She just walks outside and, oh, there's one. And that kind of intimate knowledge and intimate friendship with nature and the things that just grow, uh, none of this has been planted. This is just... You know, they they shave the ground bare, and this stuff just grows. And uh, that kind of relationship, um, I think, prevents. You know, they they do they view uh, pills and antibacterial stuffs, and they 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 just look at you and do, why why what what why would you do that? Um, because they're friends with the soil. And the plants and the animals and 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 it's just a very different mode of being. But it 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 does. These children just run around. They laugh like you wouldn't believe, and they also have a, a very healthy ability for intense concentration, intense focus, and uh, when they choose to do so. And uh, uh, but you know. It, I watch the children in the United States, and they've had all the vaccines, they've had all the protections, and they have to bring antibacterial hand sanitizer with them to school, or they're not allowed to eat, and um, and they're sick. They're just sick all the time. They just get there's something going on all the time, and these kids down here don't have any of that stuff. They know the names of the plants around. Just, I walk through. I could walk through this yard, point at plants. He knows what they all are. He doesn't know what you know to call a shovel, but he knows what all those things are. They, you know, shovels maybe not, he doesn't, you know, understand what all the technological 
gadgets that I have along with me to do radio shows. He doesn't know what those are. He's curious, but um, uh, but he knows what all of these plants are, and is just robustly healthy. Hmm. Uh, and so it to me calculates in with that you know okay locally grown organic sometimes it's it's a little more expensive. I you you throw that in that health factor in, which you can't really put a value on, but just the treatment for it would make up the cost differential. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, and what parent doesn't want their children to just be gloriously healthy? Well, you know, that's a very interesting story. And I must admit that, you know, I hope many people listening will be tempted by what you've expressed to go out and have that sort of experience themselves. I mean, I suppose... For a lot of people, they don't even know where to begin, or they, or they can't imagine exactly, let's put it that way, how to begin to get the experience, because we are so trapped in, in the way of life, which means that the quality control end of things is out of our hands, and we simply rely on the fact that it's done right, and uh, what we're eating, what we're ingesting, is what we should be ingesting. But both you and Jean have said that it's by tasting the difference that you actually make that switch. So it strikes me that that issue, how can one enable more people to have the chance to just taste the difference? When I, on my farm, I started the farm shop, and uh, it was actually right outside the dairy, and people said to me, you can't do that. You know, the cows shitting everywhere, and the stinking farming on your how can, you put a, how can you put a shop there of all places? And I oh, I didn't go and lo- ask the local authority about it. I just did it. Uh, and then I got into a bit of trouble and had to fight my case, which I won. But nevertheless, I said, no, you're wrong about that. I said, they are going to like that smell. They're going to stand watching the cows. They're going to think, wow, I'm going to bring my children here so they can pat little sheep. And sure enough, you know, it had exactly that effect. Everybody loved it because it, because it was so authentic. And uh, <clears throat> the problem is, in a certain sense, how do we get more people out there onto those type of farms, if you like, uh, and have an opportunity to taste the difference? There's some way which it should be done. I actually like the suggestion made earlier that the food would be already tasted, or this different type of food, this fresh, flavorful food would be tasted already in schools. Now, that would be the right point to start with, don't you think? I I really do. I really believe that um, it's within the power of of the organizations that are, I'm not going to use the word fighting for, because I, I don't, fighting for anything usually doesn't work, but who are bringing this new information to light. Um, it's, it's within their power to get in contact with the people within the education system. <clears throat> Excuse me, sorry, <laughs> throat is catching. But being a parent in Canada who has watched the progression of the education system, I think that now is the right time for organizations, um, organic farming co-ops, <clears throat> local yep. growers, to get together and to provide even, you know, 
on a to, to make a system where on a weekly basis they come into the food and they bring fruits and vegetables for the kids. Now, we all know that there are breakfast programs and lunch programs for um, for the needy in both America and Canada. I'm sure that they probably do it in the U.K. as well. So if we could get the organic farming organizations um, together with these organizations that provide for these less than fortunate children whose, whose parents can't afford to, to give them breakfast, I think that would be an ideal place to start because then people are getting an idea of what a benefit this food is for the children and the children are getting a good idea of the taste difference. So it, it really is about going out of our comfort zone and, and not assuming that the education system isn't open to this idea because I believe that times are changing. I believe that now is the time when we can do things like this. So it's it's the perfect opportunity for organizations like this to come together and to start to to utilize each other's individual connections, talents, skills, gifts, and and to bring that together in such a way that will introduce these children to a new way of living. Absolutely right. In fact, I wanted to point out to you that the Soil Association, the organization which I was part of for many years, twenty odd years, uh, I've been in Poland now on and off at least for the last nine years or so. I'm not involved in the board of that organization anymore. But they have developed exactly that program. It is a highly successful program. It's taking um, <clears throat> local food, not necessarily organic, but wherever possible organic, but local food into schools and getting the actual diet of the children uh, lined in line with that type of food. Now, they've done it with raising money in four or five different areas which are sympathetic to that approach and actually being able to switch the catering, the standard catering system which uses conventional, very poor quality, long food mile foods into ones using purely local and fresh foods. And it's gone into now 3,000 schools. And I think it's enormously exciting. And now they're monitoring... Wow. Yeah, this is a wow. Now they're monitoring the... The, the, the effects which it's, it's showing on the children, and they're definitely seeing the very things we've been discussing. You know, the quieter, calmer, more focused, more happy children. So the issue, the evidence is, is coming out. And what happens, of course, when all the evidence comes out, and it comes out strongly, is the element of denial becomes even stronger because the big money players <laughs> in the food industry, you know, aren't going to let that sort of information get out into the public domain without a fight. And I'm afraid the word fight is, is, does have to be used. Um, I fought very hard, and I'll tell you a story if we have enough time on this program, about how we fought to stop the genetic modification of food in Poland. And it, it, it involves some form of fighting, not physical fighting, but fighting, at least fighting for the way of life of the peasant farmer out here, which I think, um, Rick, would, would be quite comparable in some respects to the way you describe the children and the, and the, the people in, in Costa Rica. I would, I would imagine it would be, and it, it, uh, it's fascinating, and we do, we do have the time. We're actually uh, at just a, uh, we're actually past our halfway point, uh, so why don't we take a, a brief break, uh, bring on some music, and uh, 
then when we come back, that was exactly the question that I was going to ask, is that I wanted to know a little bit more about uh, what you're doing in Poland with the uh, peasant farmers, because um, uh, some people uh, may still have that ancient royal view of, you know, well, those are the you know, unwashed masses and they don't know anything. They're idiots. Uh, and they, but they are the keepers of the earth wisdom that is missing from uh, uh, modern agrochemical farming. Culture. And, um, and, and, and that uh, is so, that is so important. So I, I think we, Gene, uh, today's topic, I think we, we, we really couldn't play anything but earth but- prayer. Little Earth Prayer is definitely in order. Absolutely, absolutely. So uh, this will be uh, this will be our friend Ina V, who you can find at inav.com. That's E-N-A-V-I-E.com. And uh, Earth Prayer is based on the Hawaiian healing form called Ho'oponopono. And uh, this is a uh, Ina V's prayer to the Earth, basically. And um, uh, just bang on for what we're doing today. So um, stories about uh, his recent work, which is in, uh, in Poland, when we come back. So stay with us, folks.
the thunder of the east and the sun. In the north, the shining elder, and the south, our mother's womb. Toils above and below us to the seen and unseen. Those who have walked before and after, we ask your assistance to live simply. Please forgive us, for we know not what we do. And we thank you for all you help us do. Welcome back, everybody. Again, that was our dear friend, uh, Ina V. And, uh, you know, we're going to have to catch up with Ina and Howard and see what they're doing. See, can't we get them back on the show again, Jane? That would just be awesome. I think so. I think it would I be awesome so. to have them with us Absolutely. again. But but we're back now with uh, Sir Julian Rose. And, uh, uh, you know, we've mentioned he's a, a, a British fellow, but he's in Poland uh, doing this work. Uh, with the uh, uh, international, is it commission or international? International coalition. Coalition for the protection of the Polish countryside. And uh, why, why? Why would we need that? And what are we? Molly's protecting my countryside, apparently. Molly, hush. <laughs> um, and um, <clears throat> why, why would we? What's? What are we protecting the? countryside from and and how's that going okay and how'd you no. get involved because <laughs> it is very interesting actually that part as all it's all interesting and it's hard to know where to begin um well I, how did i get involved i think perhaps is i'll start there um in the year 2000 i was actually um after about 20 years of, of working up my organic farming in england and working also to try and convince government and the population that this is the way we should go is very very intensive campaigning as well as actual farming period i found that i sort of run out of energy to a certain degree at least and also the financial side of trying to build this farm up and make it pay was extremely difficult and i think i did try to do too much and i i started so many different small units on my farm which i felt were needed first of all for the quality of the food which was needed to coming from the land and also for the fertility building of the land. It's very poor land and very hilly and it needed a great deal of farmyard manure. So it had lots and lots of different animal units. Uh, and the time came when I felt I had to wind back down. I wound it down a little bit and I passed it over to another organic farmer who had actually lost his organic farm for various reasons. 
and he was able to carry on the tradition in a slightly more simplified form. Incidentally, on my estate, I also have um, around 250 hectares of woodland forest, and I decided I ought to put my energy more into that because I rather ignored it. But something else intervened at that time. One was that the way of life that I was involved in put a lot of strain on my first marriage. And we had two children, and at that time they were in their teens, late teens. And that marriage uh, was dissipating and actually ended in around 2001. At the same time, as I was uh, met uh, a woman called Jadwiga from Poland, who was supporting the small-scale farms in her country and was giving a lecture in London at an environmental conference about the methodology she was using, which at that time was basically ecotourism, helping small farmers take in tourists as guests and serving them real food from their farms, uh, keeping the old furniture, maintaining the traditions, and giving this total experience to people from outside. A very interesting project, which she'd been working on already for about seven years. But she had just decided that it wasn't enough and that Poland was beginning to suffer badly from the, what you might call the bog standard corporate view about what should happen to small farms. Well, yes, that means annihilate them, uh, create large farms from many small farms, um, get them to go down efficient farming routes to adopt monoculture, agrochemicals, and to become what the European Commission likes to call competitive in the world market. So she uh, was just in the process of founding an organization called the International Coalition to Protect the Polish Countryside when I met her in London at this conference and she invited me to come to Poland to be part of the inaugural proceedings of this organization. And I jumped at the opportunity uh, because I've always had a fascination for Poland. I don't know why, but all I do know is that in 1989, the little farming magazine that I used to get regularly on my farm had a huge headline which shocked me terribly. Uh, 1989, the year Solidarity um, managed to throw the communist regime out of Poland. It said, Poland up for grabs. And I thought, I had this image of all these tiny farms mm. just being completely swamped by British companies moving out there to mine the soil, make big profits, and then chuck it in and go somewhere else. And th that stuck in my memory very strongly. So when I met Jadwiga about 14 years later, uh, the first thing that jumped back into my mind was that headline. So I said, yes, I'm coming to Poland, I'll come. <clears throat> so when I arrived, there were 40 people from different countries of the world who, uh, <clears throat> me, who were being asked to be um, trustees, at least initial trustees of this organization and we met in a little farmhouse about uh, 70 kilometers from Krakow south from Poland in the mountains and before I knew what had happened she had uh, got me in a position where I could hardly say no to being invited to be uh, co-director of this organization <clears throat> and I put, so I put a soldier on because that's how it started. And she said to me, you know, you're going to be needed a minimum of, of, of one week out of every month in order that we can really make progress with this. 
I said, no, I can't do that. I can't do that. I'm far too busy in England. I got my farm, my forest, my campaigning. She said, you'll have to do it. Poland needs it. And I went, oh, wow. And I thought about it and I thought, hell, this must be the direction I'm supposed to go in. And I said, yes. So what started was an extraordinary relationship, uh, which was really built on our common passion, if you like, to uh, help the uh, retain the biodiversity of farmland of the planet on the bigger level, uh, and which we both recognize could only be done if you can keep the small traditional family farmer, peasant farmer, whatever you want to call them, on the land, because those farmers, before they're corrupted into the agrochemical route, are still applying methodologies which have been going for hundreds of years and producing high quality, wonderful foods and also maintaining the biodiversity uh, of the, of the farmland. So it's a country, Poland, which is rich, rich in wildflowers. It's got more wildflowers than any other country in Europe, apart from possibly Romania. It has something like 3,000, oh no, 30,000, excuse me, pairs of nesting storks, uh, which always come back to Poland again. They fly to Africa in the winter and come back every spring, and they always come back to Poland because it's still got what they need to survive. Most other countries, they, it does not have that. That's just illustrating why it was important to protect the Polish countryside. Uh, it has one and a half million small family farmers, uh, many of whom still use workhorses, small tractors, uh, rotate their crops, use farmyard manure, build their own houses, build their own tractors if necessary, do whatever's necessary to survive. And actually, what did, why did I go there? Well, what happened when I got there? first thing was I learned from them because it could easily be accused you know some baronet coming out with a, with a title and a large property in England going to try and educate the peasants I mean this was the last thing in my mind and I really uh, went through another a secondary humbling experience I think <clears throat> because what I saw being practiced out here in the year, early years of this this century was a type of agriculture which was well in advance of what was going on in Western society. Well in advance. Just as it is in Costa Rica, well in advance. Because we've totally destroyed it. You know, we've blown it in a massive way. And now the price to pay, the, the counting the costs, if you like, of agriculture is limitless. It's so vast. The amount of pollution, the amount of soil damage, the amount of damage to human health, the amount of damage to bird populations species-rich hay meadows, uh, hedges, everything, everything, everything ripped up, all in the cause of the mass production of mediocre, poor-quality food for profit. Because let's face it, unfortunately, in the end, that is what corporate and agriculture is only about, and that's what supermarkets are only about. So where we were coming in here, coming back to Poland, was moving in at the, right at the grassroots level again, and really examining things from the grassroots up not from the top down. And I brought what experience I'd gained in England from my campaigning, and Jadwiga and I started working together, and then we formed a, an actual relationship. We felt a lot of love, and we've been together as partners ever since that time. And one of the major campaigns uh, we undertook was to try and prevent genetically modified organisms getting in. I'll have a pause there so that you can have something to say, and then I'll tell a little bit about that. Well, I, I'm fascinated oh. by by what you're what you're sharing. Um, one of the things that I I 
have to again latch on to is that your your mentioning of this biodiverse um, environment. Because I remember from a really young age, my grandmother, who came from a Polish farming family, her gardens were always very unique in that if I compared them to my parents' gardens or to other people's gardens in the community that I grew up in, which was typical Canadian farming, that her gardens had this unique blend of what I would consider to be weeds <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and, and plants. And But she taught me from a very young age, she would take me out into the bush and she would take me out into the garden and, and she would explain to me that in order for this plant over here to flourish, this plant that we feel is not useful because we can't actually consume it or put it on the plate or cook it, actually needs to be in close proximity because it provides through the process of its, its, its life cycle, it provides nutrients into the soil that feeds the plants that feed us. Yeah. And she would use plants for pest control, and I found that very interesting, in that you know certain plants that were planted beside her tomatoes would ensure that her tomatoes didn't get destroyed by pests. And so that was one of the, and I've lost a lot of that knowledge because I learned it at such, such a young age, but it was ingrained into me at a very young age that this was an essential part of growing food, that the knowledge of which plants work together in ways that perhaps we don't think of is very important for the success of, of, any, of any production of, of food. Vitally important, and is that earth wisdom, that land wisdom that I was talking about being lost. Um, My brother-in-law had a family farm, a rather large one, uh, that he inherited when his parents were killed in a car crash, when he was just a, uh, uh, he was either in his last year of high school or early in college. And, um, And he ran it best he could. And when I was young, I I had the opportunity to go work up there. Uh, and, um, you know, you you grew corn in this field for two years, and then you put it to alfalfa to put the nitrogen back. And then, and, 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 and then the agrochemical people, I remember uh, guys from the, you know, would come visit the co-op, and then they'd come out and visit him. And they'd, oh, but if you plant this, and we're just this, and, you know, You'll get more production, and you'll make more money. And 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 he took out loans to get seeds and to get anhydrous ammonia, which you know, is, okay, it's it puts nitrogen into the soil, but don't let any of it loose above the soil because it kills everything. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I've always found that odd, you know. Was, oh, here here's this food that it's safe if you eat it, but don't breathe it because it'll kill you. Um, mm-hmm. And and saw eventually him lose the farm in the family farm bankruptcy. He went through bankruptcy once and held it for a little longer, and then he finally lost it. And a company, a large corporation, came in, and uh, these gigantic uh, tractors and 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 would you know could plow. Yes, one guy could plow a field that used to take me all day when I worked there. Uh, you know, in a morning. 
and 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 um, but they 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 literally they plow right over roads, plow right over everything, and just okay, this is all going to be in, in the entire uh, farm, including he had very carefully kept uh, wild meadows and used to work with the agricultural extension agent to make sure the right wild plants were uh, reintroduced if they were gone and and uh, he had pheasants and quail and rabbits and um, and this company came in and just overplowed the whole thing and uh, planted it all to wheat uh, GMO wheat and um, but really before we start I, I want to hear you uh, about the battling the the GMO or supporting the non-GMO, however perspective you'd like to take, that really uh, the decline sort of started with this green revolution, which was old uh, old school genetic modification, which was through hybridization, but hybridization of plants that, you know, oh, let's put a little of this wild weed thing into the wheat because then it'll be more, and, and we wound up with wheat that's not you know, people talk about wheat allergy and gluten and, and well, it's not the wheat that our great-grandparents ate. It's that different. And, um, and now we're going a step further. Uh, the things that we couldn't get plants to naturally cross and hybridize and, and, and do, it, we're doing in a laboratory. And, um, and so I'm, I'm, I'm very interested to hear uh, how it how it went, how it started, how it went, is going, how it, what's what's the state of all of that? Yes, you you've introduced it very well. It's exactly the issue. The hybridization of plants started in Western Europe anyway, in around about 1870, maybe a little bit earlier. England, of course, was the leading uh, country of the Industrial Revolution. It was also the leading modernizer in terms of agriculture. It uh, actually ditched most of its peasantry over a period of 200 years uh, and left farming in the hands of, of sort of entrepreneurial people who experimented a great deal <clears throat> in order to try and get larger volumes of crops. And the hybridization program, which reached its peak really in a, all around the time between the First and Second World War, um, was all about creating larger yield, <laughs> more tons of wheat, barley, oats, not a more superior uh, nutrient and vitamin-rich food, but purely yield. So actually, they concentrated on weight of seed, and they let the other elements, of, i.e. disease resistance, they let it go. Why? Because the agrochemical lobby introduced the idea of a type of spray that would kill the uh, bugs that would have otherwise be kept at bay, by the disease-resistant element in the non-hybridized original plant. So that brought the entire agrochemical industry into play, if you like. And farmers were told, this is modern. This is the way to do it. You know, abandon the other approach. Take up the modern approach. And believe me, the vast majority did. So they became completely dependent upon hybridized seeds and the agrochemical mixes, which are vital to maintaining a plant growing under those conditions, a hybridized plant. The next step, as you rightly said, was the laboratory transference of genetic material, DNA, from, a, from an, let's say, a, an animal into a gene, a genetic material in a, a soya bean or, or a, 
uh, maize plant. Uh, the first actually happened to be a tomato. It was called the Flavor Saver Tomato. When they took, and this is about mid-1980s, uh, they took a gene from an Icelandic cod and put it into a tomato because they figured out that tomato uh, would probably be kept in optimum condition when it was flown from California to London that way. I mean, who wants to fly a tomato from California to London in the first place? It's already completely nutty. But then, you know, in order to, to shift thousands upon thousands of these tomatoes, they thought by adding this gene from an Icelandic cod, it'll counteract the freezing temperature in the hold of the aircraft. And it didn't really work very well, so they turned it instead into a sort of paste, which they sold with a label saying a genetically modified tomato paste. But that started the run. And from then on, the field was open for scientists to start experimenting with every type of cross-fertilization <coughs> between species that absolutely no connection, family connection with each other at all. That just brought us to the most recent point where human growth promoters are now being put into pigs, uh, where rats' uh, genes are being added to salads, uh, where insects' uh, DNA is being put into various forms of vegetables to create disease resistance. And we've got so far removed from the simple reality of what we were discussing earlier in this program and the what you call serving land wisdom that we're basically... Uh, almost at the point where we've moved into a virtual reality world in, in food and farming. And the danger is obvious on so many levels, but particularly the danger is one where cross-contamination of genetically modified food, uh, excuse me, cross-contamination between genetically modified plants, let us say maize, take it as an example, because it's one of the very few that's been allowed in Europe. The European Commission has a uh, certification system, but it's only allowed um, genetically modified maize, Mon810, so Monsanto product, into Europe. So we're quite lucky. But nevertheless, they're pushing it very hard. And it is trying to get itself established in Poland. Now, this product <coughs> is basically um, grows and is maintained, maintains its pest resistance by the fact that it has been genetically modified to be resistant to large doses of glyphosate fertilizer, another word for which is Roundup, um, sprays, not fertilizer, excuse me. Glyphosate sprays is a weed killer, essentially, and a bug killer. Uh, they've made this plant resistant to that product where everything else surrounding that plant dies. So we can walk into a field where you see this happening and it's big, big in the States. At least 85% of all maize produced in America is now produced that way, North America, and incidentally, virtually the same level as soya. You will find fields bare earth and that plant only. And that's because it's been sprayed by glyphosate, which has killed everything, but the plant itself has been genetically modified to be resistant to that spray Therefore, it survives it. So when you ultimately eat that food, you're eating not only a genetically modified product which passes through into the gut and ultimately alters the DNA of the human gut and genetically modifies it, but also all the sprays which have to be put on. And that has been found in combination between the two. Uh, in European laboratories, they have now found five independent European laboratories, which include the government of uh, uh, Austria, 
uh, the, Royal, the Academy of Sciences in, in Moscow, uh, senior, very well uh, reputed um, laboratory in France and in Italy, they've all come up with exactly the same result when rodents were fed a diluted diet of genetically modified animal feed. They got serious lessons of the kidney and the liver within one year. And by the second year, they had succumbed to sterility. That means they were unable to reproduce. Now, I've tried to put all that rather fast into a sort of nutshell to, to, to explain why we feel that it's vital that we hold the line in Poland because here's a country which is still operating, if you like, it's organic by default. You know, the vast number of these tiny farms are still practicing the old traditional methods which haven't even got agrochemicals applied to them. So the quality of the food is exceptional. And it's there. It's still there for the people to eat. But the pressure to change it is vast. The corporations are trying to move in. The European Union is trying to get it changed. And the government is unfortunately opening itself to, to them and not listening to the voice of the people. And the voice of the people... 75% are against, 75%, and that's the figure throughout Europe. So what we've done is to come together and fight a campaign, which I'm happy to tell you we've so far succeeded in, in a period of two years between 2004 and 2006. We managed to get every province in Poland, and there are 16, to declare itself a GMO-free zone. That was just two of us. <laughs> but... We were, helped by the, we were helped by the angels, you see. They, they really wanted Poland saved, so they gave us enormous power. And we managed, and with a lot of colleagues, of course, joining in and helping, I don't mean to say it's literally two people, but we spearheaded this. And we managed to get every single province. Once a couple had started, the others started to follow. We got the whole of Poland GMO-free zone, self-declaration, by the uh, beginning of the year 2006. Then we said, Okay, the board of each of the provincial boards, you write to the president of Poland and demand that there's a ban on the import and planting of genetically modified food. And they all did write. And would you believe it? Three months later, he banned the import and planting of any genetically modified food that was attempting to get in at that time. They made an official act of government to ban it. And that never happened in any other country in the world. And Poland was the first one to do it. So... That's our story, and I know it's a pretty extraordinary one, but wow, you know, I'm very proud to be out here and to be part of it. Well, I think, um, (laughs) I find it interesting that you say that the angels helped. Um, The the Polish people have always believed themselves to be very blessed and very protected, and that is where they derive a lot of their strength from. And if, if... um, if a Polak gets it in their head that they are going to protect their land, protect their family, there's not a lot you can do to sway them. <laughs> they are yeah. very strong people. And yeah. um, so you're, you're in the right place to have the, the backup and the support mm. that you need from the farmers themselves because that is their land. That is their livelihood, and that is the welfare of their their families and their country. And you just don't mess with that. <laughs> it's very 
proved hey. the truth many times. People have failed many, many times. <laughs> Ain't nobody in Poland got time for all that. Uh, <laughs> no, but it, 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 it is, is absolutely true. It, and it's it, an astounding story, and I'm very proud of my, my ancestry in hearing that tale. I really am. So thank you for sharing right. that. No, you must not so, as they say, not at all. It's a, uh, <clears throat> and it's a fabulous thing that, uh, that you have accomplished, uh, uh, you know, with some help, but really the two of you, uh, because it, it is, it's, it's um, you know, you briefly mentioned cross-contamination. Um, you, these things don't, you know, people might think, or be under the impression that, you know, I could plant genetically modified maize in my field and it's not it's no bother to my neighbor uh, who grows organic maize. But it is a bother because nature doesn't behave like a walled-off laboratory mm-hmm. and pollen travels. And, mm. um, sure does. So you change genetic traits and then you say, well, I'm going to keep it in this one field. And I think we've discovered in the United States by, oh, we never had that kind of genetically modified wheat in that location. Well, but it got over there anyway. It's like Gene's favorite bit from Jurassic Park when the scientist says, you know, when they discover that the, these supposedly sterile all female dinosaurs are having babies, he said, nature will find a way. Nature's pervasive. It it it, and it's it's a. I mean, permaculture comes to mind. It is a. Um, you know, I look at the jungle here, and people would think, well, it's a jungle. There must be just tremendous amounts of organic waste on the floor, of the <laughs> jungle, and there's not. It's no. there are creatures, uh, plants, the little plants that are under the big canopy that. It, it all goes together in this glorious symphony, and 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 yeah, there's some leaves on the jungle floor, but not what one would think. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, knee-deep organic mm-hmm. rotting material because it's all used. It's all mm-hmm. used, mm-hmm. and it's all part of the the game. And so, uh, to me, the most unnatural nature would be this sterile dirt with nothing but the crop plant on it yeah Yeah. um and 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 we've been made out to be those of us that believe this way have somewhat been made out to be alarmists i was uh, drawn to pull up an article that i saw just last month well just this month 10 days ago the 14th of october where um Mr. Owen Patterson, Patterson, who uh, is the uh, uh, Environment Secretary in the United Kingdom, <clears throat> has come out and said that opponents of the development of GMO rice that's been enriched with vitamin A are wicked for opposing it. And uh, wow. Society has been sort of trained through school and this and that and the other that, you know, the powers that be, the ministers, the things, they're looking out after our best interests. And um, uh, that's a bit of a that's a bit of a fib, a bit of a tall tale. <laughs> Just a small one. Shenanigans. 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 We've had them up to here with it. 
yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and 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 he may be convinced, but you know, um, you know, saying you, you know this. I feel really strongly about it. I think what they do is absolutely wicked. I think what these GMO crops does is absolutely wicked because exactly. it it just you know people. A tomato that contains genetic material from a fish. Yeah. There's, there's this, just, just it just makes me cringe. Like just hearing that, every both times that he said it, I I, I was cringing. I was over here so cringing. It's so the, the the thought to me is just disgusting. And when people think about genetically modified foods, they're thinking, okay, well they're taking this from that plant and they're mixing that with that plant, and and that in and of itself is a little scary for people. But if you were to tell the general public that they're mixing insect DNA with the food that you're feeding your kids. Yep, exactly. With the salads that you're feeding exactly. your kids. Exactly. Are you kidding me? Most parents would freak. Or, yeah, or would. some of these crops that literally generate pesticides within themselves because exactly. of genetic modification. Exactly. Well, you know, okay, you, you can't wash that off. Yep. You know, you might be able to wash a spray off, but... Um, yeah, it's actually... But you can't wash it off if it's in there. No, and it's unrecallable. You can't wash a spray off either because the spray gets into the soil and the plants derive their nutrients from the soil. So the the, the, the chemicals that are in the spray get into the vegetables themselves. There's no washing that off. No way. You're wasting your time. It. I remember a day when my brother-in-law, if there, if if he noticed pests in in a cornfield or a wheat field, the first thing he did was grab some dirt and smell it and possibly even taste it. And he was trying to figure out what was it that the plants weren't healthy enough to be able to handle that. Yeah, yeah. Because in their healthy natural state, oh, there there must there may be some, but the losses are small. And uh, it reminds me, I can't remember the the permaculture uh, fellow. Who was talking about? Uh, you know, they were. He was touring some journalist through where his fruit trees and things were, and the and the journalist asked him about you know the the little branches coming off the bottom of the trees. Said, "Aren't those we call those suckers? Don't you need to cut those off to to uh, help the plant?" And then he said, "Well, <clears throat> I could, but <clears throat> you see, there's this stuff that grows down here. These things, the rabbits eat those." And and the stuff that's up here, just about mid high, the deer and things, they they eat those, yeah. and yeah. then and then we eat everything that's up here. And if I yeah. cut all of these things off, they will destroy the tree. Mm. In order to, they will knock mm. it down. They will chew on it. They will destroy the tree in an attempt to get at the food. So mm. I let them have theirs. They let me have mine. Mm. And that just makes perfect sense to me. That just oh, yeah. That just is. Yeah. Is 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 very basic logic that I oh, think well anyone should be able to understand, as opposed to you know well, okay w- then we'll just kill all the rabbits and deer and you know, exactly. That, exactly that's just ridiculous and well, um, you know that's like saying cities is. cities have a litter problem oh well we'll just kill all the people and then the litter won't be a problem it is it is like that I think you're absolutely right I call it monoculture of the mind. And in fact, you know, Owen Patterson, Secretary of the Environment, who called people wicked, 
for protesting against genetically modified organisms, um, has suffering from a, a severe monoculture of the mind because in China, while they wanted wanted launch this particular product, this golden rice, which has been genetically modified, they've been trying for 10 years to get it right, and they can't. It's such a failed experiment, which he doesn't even realize. And the other element is, normally, if anyone was trying to ensure that children got the right mix of vitamins in their diet, they would grow a variety of foods that contain a variety of vitamins. But no, if you're suffering from a monoculture of the mind, you have to put all the vitamins in one product, rice. And that can only be done by genetically modifying it. You know, you see what I mean? It is complete. You get stuck in this monocultural attitude. Everything is reduced to just one or two ways of doing it. And anyone that disagrees with that is wicked or stupid. And it's so anti-nature. I mean, I mean, really, what we're talking about here is it, it's common sense. Sit outside and watch the animals for about an hour. You don't see the squirrels and the birds fighting over their food source. It doesn't happen. Nature mm-hmm. has provided us with a diverse plethora of nutrients, tastes, flavors, textures, vitamins for us to eat. And if you could just take a cue from the animals, you don't see the, the deer kicking the rabbit. Mm-hmm. Because that's Good the point. deer's tree. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, c- come on. It's, it's common sense. And that's why, again, if we can get it into the schools, and that's where I think the, the big difference is going to come from. Kids know this innately. Yes. They know yes. this to be a truth. Yes. You can take that's a child, right. take them out into the wilderness, and they will look at the way that everything works together. Yes, exactly. They will see the connection naturally the only time they don't see the connection is when you remove the child from the proof of that connection so Mm. we take them out of the environment and we stick them in high rises and Mm. we surround them with gray gray and red brick and Mm. we wonder why they're depressed Mm. and listless Mm. and lifeless Mm. and angry they're a little gray and And red angry Well, that's so true, all the things you're saying. It's a lot of wisdom being spoken here. I'm delighted to be able to share with you on this program. It's actually an excellent level on its own right and and educational issues starting at the bottom level, which they have to, I think. How can one progress in making positive change unless one's got one's agriculture basically right? I I think it's like a... um, it's like a weather gauge for everything else that exists in society. If we get the agriculture right, it flows on from there. If we destroy and get it completely wrong, everything flows in the wrong direction from there. It's basically so fundamental, the principles that are being discussed here, so fundamental and so important that every school, every educational authority ought to make a point of this type of teaching and practical, hands-on experience of children growing, putting some seeds in the soil, putting a little water on them, watching them grow, taking walks in wilderness areas, uh, seeing how things work. You know, that ought to be a fundamental part of the educational system. But believe me, how many schools do you know where that even is anywhere on the curriculum at all? Right. And and so parents, parents that are listening, go 
talk to your talk to your school, talk to the other parents. Um, look at what these two individuals have done in Poland. It it does not have to be that you have an army of thousands with you when you go. Take the truth with you. Arm yourself with the truth, mm-hmm. and 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 you yeah. can do amazing things because yeah. even small changes, even having a farmers co-op come in once a month, and and these children are not. They'll know. They'll taste that organic food and and feel the texture in their mouths and the taste that delights their taste buds and then tomorrow they'll have the cafeteria food and they'll make faces you've seen them you have children they make faces they know that doesn't taste right and and soon they'll want to know where's the food that tastes right i want more of the food that tastes right and um um it can be as simple as that and, and, and grow from there. I, we're not going to get Monsanto off the planet tomorrow, but I also believe we're not going to get Monsanto off the planet by having a demonstration with big signs. We've got to convince the people, yeah. uh, the consumer. If the consumer says, I'm not going to buy that, and yeah. you take the profit out of it, they'll do something different because they want the money. And um, uh, I think that the thing we could do biggest to solve hunger on this planet is not figure out how we can make more tons of wheat. I mean, you know, how can you get your cow to weigh more quicker? Well, you make them fat. It's unhealthy for the cow. And then you're eating unhealthy cows, and then you're unhealthy. And we are intimately tied, you know. I, as you said in the beginning, there's there's more to us than this physical body, this uh, corporeal yes. manifestation. Yes. However, I also believe that our corporeal manifestation has is here on this planet with these plants. They all sort of evolve together mm-hmm. in a system, mm-hmm. and if we mess with the system, we're messing up our corporeal vehicle so to speak and uh, and yes what we need is was already here organic farming is really you know the the this centuries passed down maybe millennia passed down polish farming techniques it all started with watching how nature does things Mm. because nature does things better than monsanto Sorry, Mr. Corporation. <laughs> yep. But the fruit that I eat every day down here in Costa Rica is absolute proof of that. And um, uh, best papaya I've had, I pulled it off the tree myself. And mm. wow. Uh, and, and I bet you money that studies which corporations would never finance would indicate that. Uh, it would. Very readily, because all you got to do is run around a few of these. I don't mean go to San Jose, Costa Rica. I mean come out here in the Costa Bayena, where we don't have much, but what we've got is of extraordinary quality. And um, and, and 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 these people's lives are—they're happy and they're healthy. And we can all be that way because the bounty's here if we'll quit mucking up, mucking it up. 
So anyway, well, soap, soapbox away. <clears throat> I get on my soapbox uh, now and again. <laughs> well, I think it's fair enough because it's extremely true. And I just want to briefly make mention of the fact that my the book that I've been working on and recently completed, and which is now going out to publication, is called In Defense of Life, um, Essays on a Radical Reworking of Green Wisdom. And I called it In Defense of Life because it is an issue of life or death. And if once one is on the side of life, one sees everything beautiful and wonderful emerging in front of one, and one sees all the potential which has not yet been properly utilized, and one feels that the objective of one's reason, if you like, for coming back to planet Earth or coming for the first time, is to ensure that we utilize our potential to the maximum and that we use it in defense of life. And it isn't a defensive gesture as such, but it's like saying life is a vast, rich, highly diverse, extraordinary thing, which we're only just touching on in terms of our own experience. Everything we do in this wonderful life should be a holy gesture. We should realize that we are very fortunate we're nourished every day of our lives by air, by soil, by plants, by trees. We're part of it. We're one with it. We, also, in turn, have to do our nourishing and giving. And then we are working like a permaculture garden, like an organic garden, like a biodiverse garden. And we're one component within all the other components. So I felt that I needed to write uh, the, the title of this book, In Defense of Life, because I feel life is under such enormous threat at this day and age. We're reaching such a climactic point where the, what you might call the corporate and consumer approach to life, which has been running hard for 250 odd years, seems to have reached the sort of zenith of maximum danger, maximum damage. And what is simultaneously emerging underneath is massive amount of little green shoots uh, and people's uh, awareness is, is growing about all these issues. But, you know, if you have a growing awareness, you have to channel that awareness into taking action. It isn't enough just to meditate on it, to sit on it, to say, wow, great. It's actually got to be turned into action. And that is how we, working at the grassroots level, uh, have been able to work closely with peasant farmers in Poland and millions of people like ourselves all over the world, activists of various natures, yourselves with your radio programs and your communication, we're all working towards the same thing, which is this becoming back into this harmony with the planet and with the cosmos again. And it's enormously enriching work. I would do it if I wasn't paid a penny. And as a matter of fact, I'm, I'm not really, uh, because I think that is what life's all about. <laughs> Well, it is. It's a gigantic community, this spaceship Earth that we're on. And it, when it's operating at its optimal, it really is a joy. And it's not hard work, uh, like, you know, keeping track by the, by the milligram of what you have to put here and there. I don't, I don't see any of the jungle around here saying, oh, we're a teaspoon short of dead leaves over here. It, it's just an abundant, a richly abundant system yeah. for every organism on the planet yeah. to be able to benefit Absolutely. from without taking from any of the others. Marvelous. Um, Absolutely true. And I just want to remind um, our listeners, 
before we share um, our remarkable guest links and information that taking action does not always mean heading up a foundation to go to battle against the GMO producers. Sometimes it means as simple a thing as making the conscious decision to buy from the lady who runs the vegetable stand who supports the local growers rather than buy from your big local department store or grocery. And and if if you'd like to just put all of what we've talked about away, if it sounds too big and too scary... It's yummier, people. It's just yummier. It tastes better. It tastes so better. So if nothing else, if nothing else, give your family the best taste you can, and you'll oh, find yeah. that they'll be healthier, happier, um, and uh, wouldn't it be That's grand fun. if we could have healthy, happy children? I think all of the parents want that, and, uh, and another pill is not the answer. And we do want to be sure that we get your, get your links out for folks so that they can can follow your work and and uh, uh, I and know find this book and find this book when it when it comes. <laughs> it's not quite out yet. The the book. Well, I, I I'm not entirely sure when it comes out in America, but it's very very soon. I think it's November the sixth. In England, it's um, coming out on the November the twenty ninth. It's already up on Amazon, which is a, a big website where you can buy thousands of different books, and it's also available by people who want to contact me direct on my own website, which is www.julianrose.info. That's J-U-L-I-A-N-R-O-S-E dot info. And I will be able to, if if anyone wants to write to me, I can probably get them a copy. It won't be straight away, but it will be during the month of December. If people want to support ICPPC, how how can they do that? Can they also do that through your website? Certainly. Um, ICPPC uh, website is a good place to come and visit. Uh, I think we've got a number of different websites because we're doing a different activities, actually. <laughs> you wouldn't believe, really, but we're also running an eco-center here where we demonstrate renewable energy technology, uh, grow organic oh, herbal cool. plants. Yes, and, and we actually are actually self-sufficient in our own vegetables. And I've turned from being a largely arable and livestock farmer into a vegetable grower recently and um, I'm out there with my little tractor and the Advega uh, burrowing away and we're 70% um, self-sufficient on, with our veg around here and but ICPPC uh, website I think you can get it just by going www.icppc.pl and that'll take you to the main website and then there are links to the other aspects of our work and uh, I don't know how we manage to do all these things, but, you know, when you're in the thing you love doing, time expands. When you're in the thing, Absolutely. doing the thing you don't like, it always seems there's far too much time. You don't know what to do with it. So I'm in a situation where I find that uh, I can always seem to get another thing in, providing it's in the flow of life. Uh, it's almost limitless, actually, I think, what we can achieve, possibly. I, I believe that we don't know really what we can achieve, and that it would be exactly. an excellent game to explore that, and, uh, uh, and and super fun. And so, and of course, uh, you know, Jane will be back because the there's a little slide box on the top of Julian's JulianRose.info, and the first thing that popped up was a phoenix rising. And uh, uh, yes, ah, that, really? that, I that that would be That's our same my blog site. Yes, that would That's be interesting that that pops up. Yes, our our Jean with the, her phoenix nest and phoenix 
website <laughs> and all of that. So it's uh, lovely. Yeah. And of course, there's also uh, Hardwick Estate. Uh, .co.uk to find out more about the Hardwick Estate uh, and what's wow, going on there. Well, you that too. That's very clever yeah. of you. Uh, and I, I might just quickly add, if I might, the, the book basically sort of wake-up call um, for us to take control over our lives before they become irreversibly controlled. Uh, it calls basically for the linking up of practical, spiritual, political, and artistic dimensions that have largely been kept separate and for a renewal or at least return to first principles of a green movement that I think has lost its way. So it's a very holistic book, and it's actually made up of 24 different essays, which I've written over the last five years. Simply wonderful. I, I just have to thank you, uh, Sir Julian. Uh, just before the show, I'm, I, I said your name to Jean, and it's in defense of her, it's her job not to do research on our guests and bring the audience perspective of we don't know what you're doing, so here's our questions. Uh, but the uh, she said, it's, he's a knight. I said, oh, he's part of the landed gentry over there, don't you know? And, and, uh, <laughs> and but after after spending uh, spending some time he with is, you chatting, he is a you knight. deserve it. He's a knight in defense of our mother and, and in, in, in defense of life. And and those well, you are know, our favorite so times. That's so true. I'm more a knight in that respect. Believe me, I, I didn't like this idea of a title at all. The only reason I hung on to it was because my, I felt my parents would never understand if I ditched it. And so I decided not to use it very much, but use it occasionally and rather specifically to try and open doors so as to make further progress with all these issues we've been discussing today. And, and, and bully for you on all of it, sir. And, uh, and I have immense gratitude and our honor to uh, uh, spend time with you and, and thank you for sharing your time, talent, and treasure with us in the world. Well, it's been a pleasure for me, too, and I th must say it's been a wonderful experience for me to have such warm and deep and a very, well, very educated type conversation with people uh, spread around the world and to feel so much shared information has been passed here in a way which I haven't had on many programs which I've done on BBC Radio I come nowhere near the sort of uh, experience I've had sharing this with you. Well, that's a compliment I'm going to take forward in everything that I do. Thank you very much. Thank much. you very much, sir. Absolutely. Uh, we're doing, doing everything we can and we're working on more, so... Um, but 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 thank you again and uh, everybody do get by julianrose.info uh, pick up the book uh, because uh, we d we do need to change course and uh, and and he's he's spot on so uh, check that out and 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 do get by our website everydayconnection.me because it's all about me no matter which one of us me's is reading that and uh, sign up for our mailing list so you can keep track of these. Uh, conversations that we uh, are having in the future, and we have uh, almost 300 other brilliant conversations that you're. We got a search feature up top, so you don't have to like wade through them all. You can just pop a topic in there. I bet you you'll find something, and uh, we hope that you enjoy it. So, uh, thank you again, and uh, thank you to all of our listeners, and uh, we we do this in part for you, and uh, we hope that you've enjoyed it and that you will join us again on our next adventure. But until then, 
to our mother, to each other, and especially to yourselves. Stay connected. Have a great now, everybody. Join Gene and Rick again next time. Until then, visit their website at everydayconnection.me and subscribe for news and updates. Stop by their Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash everydayconnection and join the conversation. You can also subscribe on iTunes by searching for Everyday Connection Radio. Subscriptions are free, just like your Everyday Connection. of your life the only question before that question how do you find the perfect ring to ask it with with the incredible selection of diamonds at jared and our price match guarantee you can dare to stop searching and find the perfect diamond at a price you'll love visit your local jared store today and dare to be devoted we promise to match any price on a like loose certified diamond of the same quality from any other jewelry retailer see jared.com slash price match for details So you're ready to ask the biggest question of your life, the only question before that question. How do you find the perfect ring to ask it with? With the incredible selection of diamonds at Jared and our price match guarantee, you can dare to stop searching and find the perfect diamond at a price you'll love. Visit your local Jared store today and dare to be devoted. We promise to match any price on a like loose certified diamond of the same quality from any other jewelry retailer. See jared.com slash price match for details.